Hello, you're welcome to another episode of FNI Rap Chat. You're with me, Paul Webster. Uh, so yeah, we're trying to set this up for uh, a couple of weeks. This this interview with Fergal Roar, the uh, director of the Lonely battle of thomas reed um one of my favorite films of the last few years um a brilliant irish documentary about uh, a man in Kildare who took on the ida over trying to uh take his land from him uh really really well made film um it's kind of uh, a little bit offbeat a little bit experimental um kind of expressive form of documentary um if you haven't had a chance to see it yet you might just be able to see it. there's still some screenings uh in various cinemas around the country um and we'll let you know when it's on VOD this was our first um, kind of proxy interview so Fergal is based in Fer- in Berlin so uh we uh, did the the uh, interview over the phone um so hopefully that doesn't take away from uh the the conversation at all um so yeah uh, as is usual uh get in touch with us and let you know let us know what you think um you can also help support the show at buymeacoffee.com forward slash uh fni so yeah uh, we are always trying to just you know uh, make the show better and uh even just you know help us support that way that we can kind of even buy a coffee for our guests or you know p- help pay for their bus if they need to come uh from outside of dublin or that kind of thing so yeah uh, we give you fergal ward Uh, Fergal Ward, thanks very much for calling us here in the studio today. Um, this is our first. Always nice to be here. Great. Uh, this is our first actual uh, call in. So you are based in Berlin, is that right? I am. Yes. Uh, the last maybe two, two and a half years now. Great. And how do, how do you find living there and being an artist and all that? Yeah, it's. Uh uh, it's a really good place to uh, to live. Um, it's quite an international city. Lots of people from obviously different parts, um, and yeah, I've a good few friends who've moved over here as well. Yeah, it's obviously much cheaper than Dublin. So, yeah. for, especially for a lot of people, artists and writers, uh, it's still uh, uh, an alternative place to go to uh, compared to Dublin. Yeah, yeah, you're actually the second guest that we've had on who's based in Berlin another Fergal actually Fergal Rock uh, scriptwriter. Um he's, he's based good. there as well yeah so um could you just describe your the, your style your filmmaking style and the kind of films that you're interested in making uh, you just woke up there time to start to describe the what was the first bit? uh just your style your filmmaking style and the kind of films that you're interested in making um, I suppose the style of the work, uh, the kind of films that we're interested in making, um, it's definitely a documentary form that is uh, hugely influenced by cinema and the history of cinema and the cinematic power visually and uh, true audio of, of the potential of that. Uh, yeah. That's 
that's the kind of documentary that, like, I work a lot with Tig. This is another project that we've done together that yeah. we strive to make. So I think a lot of our influences uh, in making the film wouldn't necessarily be from the documentary world. It would be the kind of world of Bellatar and and film vendors and um, yeah, it's uh, they would be big influences uh, and definitely obviously like the Russian filmmakers and Tarkovsky, a huge yeah. influence on like what we try to do. Yeah. So yeah, so that's the, the world that kind of inspires us. So then um, we try to bring that to the form, the medium of documentary, which is which has always had it uh, yeah. and is very receptive to being tackled in that way. So uh, I don't know if that answers the question. No, that's, that's great. And what are the challenges involved, say, because um, you're in blending that documentary style because you're dealing with uh, real people. So is it difficult to find subjects that suit that style or is it just a way of, a different way of thinking about telling those kind of stories? Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's kind of, I think probably some of the more exciting filmmakers that are working in the in fiction film uh, are kind of working in that sphere of where documentary meets fiction and maybe vice versa, the, some of the most interesting areas to work in in documentaries where it meets the fiction world. Um, so a lot of, you know, like Ken Loach is a great example of always working with non-actors yeah. and largely unscripted. And, you could you know, some of his stuff is closer to documentary than so much of documentary sort of making out. Yeah. It's so scripted and contrived and storyboarded and shot-listed. Um, so, yeah, I think there is that place where those kind of the two mediums meet, or the, yeah, yeah. the documentary and and, and fiction... Uh, um, what's it called non-fact, non-fiction and for non-fiction and fiction full of meat um, and yeah no matter I think that's that's, that's the area of interest uh, and I think it's yeah it's you obviously need to find the right characters you know who could maybe do it with you you know so in our case with Thomas yeah, um, he was suited to it and I was able to love the merits of it and that he wouldn't look foolish in it, and that it was the best way to tell the story. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'd just like to congratulate you on uh, The Lonely Battle of Thomas Reed. It's one of my favourite films, Irish films of the last year, definitely. Um, so, super, thank you. Um, so, yeah, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about how it came about and the, the kind of the story of the film and the challenges that were involved. Um, so... So Thomas, uh, like the background to it is uh, he's a farmer living on his own um, in uh, a house that his family have had since the late 1800s. And he was happy uh, going about his business, doing his thing. And he was uh, approached by the IDA to sell. Uh, They asked him to sell his house and farm to them. Uh, He didn't want to, and then they... Uh, issued a compulsory purchase order on his house and farm and so that started a long legal battle for uh, the whole thing was probably five years where he fought all the way to the Supreme Court to hold on to his house and farm and so we joined I started filming Thomas after he'd lost in the High Court Uh, so he still had the eviction kind of hanging over him 
and then I filmed with him from that point. And how long was that? Uh, I think the whole film was about two and a half years. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was a very patient and slow thing to make. It wasn't like three shoot days with mm. the schedule. We just go and we do. There were long periods where I couldn't shoot with him, but I would still come and visit him and spend time with him and keep our relationship uh, strong and intact. So, but there was, you know, months where I would go prepared to film, but Thomas wouldn't be in a position to film. So, yeah. Um, yeah, difficult in that way. And how did you come across him initially? Uh, he had protest signs uh, written up, handwritten protest signs on his uh, garden wall. And I'd seen it a few times driving past that house on that road. Okay. And I stopped one day to read the signs. And kind of the vision for the film, did that come to you easily? Uh, was it kind of a collaborative thing between yourself, Tyg, and Thomas, or how did how did you kind of find the actual style of the film? So I work. Uh, I've always worked with extensively with uh, Tyg Sullivan, the filmmaker. So we've been working together on films for years, okay. um, as he edited uh, and designed and co-wrote it with me. So a huge part of the co-writing with us would have been I would have gone off and shot some of uh, the initial kind of scenes, spending time with Thomas in a kind of documentary variety way. Uh, I'd just apparently know the style of how I was trying to shoot it, and then I'd go back with, to Tyg, and we'd edit them on the timeline, and we'd have a look and see where the film is. You know, he's always quite interrogative of, of it, you know, who is the camera, what's it doing, what's it mean by being here when it looks, when we look at it. We look at an angle this way, so well, I was kind of working it out with Tyke what what the language of the film would be, so it could be coherent before we shoot more. Yeah, and yeah, I think it was like Tyke was a huge influence on this idea of the film as a psychological portrait of Thomas's experience. Like we make the film in his in his farm in his radius, uh, we stay kind of within the boundaries of. Uh, the lands that he has that are threatened. So once he arrived at that idea, that yeah, this is the way forward. Then, then you, you kind of know what you have to do then. And then obviously the decision to bring the whole court and legal proceedings mm. to the farm itself was a no-brainer. Then you know okay. everything had to happen in his mind. His mind is his farm, so it was kind of a closed loop. Okay, yeah, um, and that that was something that I felt worked so well. Um, but can pitching those kind of ideas can they be a little bit difficult for other people, say like funders or subjects, to to get a grasp of, or is it just about good communication? Um, the trick is not to pitch those elements. Okay, you uh, find so. <laughs> um, so yeah, like I, I always from the start had a vision for the film that this is what would happen mm. with actors and wigs and judges, cloaks and court scenes and cows and shit and the whole thing happening together. Yeah. Um, but I remember at the time we were going in for funding, there was, uh, there was uh, I don't know if you know Sarah Dillon, I think you might have yeah. had her on a podcast. We did, uh, before. yeah. Sarah's great. Yeah. 
been a great champion of myself and Tyg's work over yeah. the years. It was really sad to see her leaving the, the film board. Mm. Um, but when I went in originally with the idea back in 2016, uh, and I was approaching it with her, you know, because I could confide in her before mm. we would bring it to the board proper. Okay. And I was telling her about some of my ideas about this, about actors and about... And it was 2016, and they were after seeing a lot of 1916 centenary stuff right. with a lot of reenactments and a lot of actors. And to put it politely, uh, I was made aware that there was a bit of a reenactment fatigue yeah. uh, in the film board because when it's when it's not done well, it's not done well, yeah. Yeah. and it really sticks out. So I took the nod and said, "Okay, we can, you know." It can come. It can come at a later time. But I'll, the proposal was strong enough to work in a straighter documentary sense. Yeah. It didn't need uh, to pitch that. But yeah, it's an interesting question that you ask. It's like it can scare people, you know. So, yeah. but hopefully, you know, if you can prove that it can work and you've evidence of it, I, I don't think I'd be reluctant to mention it. You know, in obviously in future uh, proposals to funders. Yeah. Um, yeah, once you've you kind of got proof of concept that it works. So, you know, I think if anything, I'd like to go more adventurously into into that place and see what else you could do, yeah. do with it. Cool. And, like, Thomas himself seemed to get it completely and there were no problems there. Yeah, it was like the... I was, the idea to involve Thomas in one of the reenactments... Uh, it just, like, from spending so much time with me, it just became obvious to me that yeah. this one particular moment in his life when those IDA men came mm. for the first time, because yeah. he would talk about it so often, and he would tell me the story so often, right. that I soon realized that he actually had a verbatim recall of this event. Okay. Uh, and then I was able to get all the court transcripts and the oral hearing transcripts of, so of the actual guys who called to him. Mm. So I could... I could I could get the the words that they use and the language that they speak in uh, from all this court's transcripts. Okay. So then I was able to essentially, you know, be able to present those guys as really accurately as possible uh, in the context of, of Thomas, you know, yeah. being involved and having that conversation again. Yeah. So we cast two guys exactly like the real men as well. Right. We went to a lot of efforts to to have everything in place so you know it's obviously a bit of risk but then once they would walk in the door and come to Thomas that's uh, Thomas there might be enough there to trigger Thomas back into that actual moment in time yeah. uh, where uh, which hopefully we think it works and hopefully the viewers do as well and uh, I think it's the first time in the film that uh, something beyond well you don't even know if it's staged or not yeah. I think because there's no there's no uh, inclination but at that stage there's going to be it's going to be anything other than a straight documentary maybe so I think a lot of people the first time see it and kind of just think wow that was amazing that you were there when that event happened yeah. but as the film goes on we show that it was a creation so I yeah. think that's important as well if you are working in this place you don't do it to to imitate reality, or you know, mm. to paper over a crack in your in your in your timeline, in your narrative. Like you know, if you're going into that, I think it's really important to make the viewer aware that you're mm. doing this. It doesn't have to be right in the moment. Yeah. But we have a scene about five minutes later where you see the exact same scene happening from Thomas's point of view. Mm. So you totally know that they're actors. 
yeah. that this is created. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That you're not you're not trying to trick the viewers. No, I think it's a really important thing, and I think what I'm really attracted and excited about this type of documentary that can work in this space between fiction and fact. Uh, we have to be really, really careful, people who work in this medium, that it is one of the few things out there that is still trusted by most people. Mm. Uh, we're, we're rapidly losing trust in news outlets, in newspapers. Yeah. Um, if documentary starts going into this realm of creation and actors and the viewers don't know what they're looking at, we're going to end up with another medium that nobody believes in anymore. So yeah. there are really important issues around this, about yeah. if you are doing it, why you're doing it and what those lines are. So yeah. uh, definitely you have to, yeah, we have to be really careful about this and I, I get quite annoyed when I see films that work in this space. But uh, yeah, you can see that it's, it's a manipulation of the viewer to make them believe something. It's, it's using, using fiction for the wrong reasons. Yeah. Uh, it's using fiction to make your, your film more dynamic, more interesting. Uh, yeah. But yeah, it kind of sells confusion as to truth and reality. Mm. Well, I think you handled it really well. I, I would have been one of those people I, when I, in those first scenes or the first scene, I wasn't sure if it was real or not. And I think that's a testament to your casting and the directing. Um, how did you kind of talk the actors through that and, and get those really natural performances from them? Well, with really great actor was Phil Kelly. Phil, we had auditions in Dublin for the main IDA man role. Okay. And... Yeah, it's kind of like, because I don't normally obviously work with actors, uh, but I do work in documentary and there's this kind of authenticity that you can be quite good at picking up on. Yeah. Uh, after making documentary for many years and the first time he read for the parts, like, and he looked in my eyes, you know, I was playing Thomas as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, yeah, there was just like, he just screamed authenticity, you know. Right. That, uh, but also that he... We didn't want any cartoon villain characters in this, you know. These are good guys. They're, there's good people in this, you know. It's just yeah. Sometimes good people have to do bad work, and uh, that was important for us. That you know, that like this the, uh, this character being cast was, you, you know, we want the viewers to who see the film to go. Uh, we don't want it to be one-sided. Like mm -hmm. maybe some people think, hey, you know, what he's saying. Uh, makes sense, you know. I don't actually agree with Thomas in this moment and stuff, you know. It, it has to be there for people to kind of, you know, read into it. We can't, uh, you know, just orchestrate it so you're going to be, you know, instantly on one person's side. Yeah. It doesn't make it that interesting, I think. Yeah. Um, no, that definitely came across. Um, and after seeing the film and speaking with other people who'd seen it, there was there's always a healthy debate about that and uh you know who's kind of whose side you're on but you know it's not a, it's that's why i think it's such an interesting story because it's not that black and white um so i think you, you handle that really well um just talk about your the shooting style just it's a very uh kind of unusual but very watchable kind of style and it's it's almost hypnotic um you're watching, you're following Thomas on his farm doing very menial tasks, but it, visually it's very interesting. Even there, there's a scene where he goes to a supermarket, I think just a Tesco near his house, and it almost 
feels like a different planet or something you know it's it's so familiar but has this surreal sense and just wondering how you kind of approach that style yeah so i've been the style has been developed a bit over a couple of films and this uh this this film here was i suppose the fruition of the previous two films uh Great Wall uh, with uh, Tyg and we did another film following another man in his world uh, a few years before called in the Loop. So I always wanted to, because with this film I would have to do everything on my own, so I'm doing sound and picture as well as directing, so um, I needed a a setup that would work uh, for the intimacy I needed between Thomas himself, but... uh, but also that would have no barriers between the kind of how far I wanted to push the thing cinematically. So, uh, so it's kind of quite a simple system. Like, uh, like I, sh- I, I shoot the film on one lens. I don't change lenses. One lens, okay. and the whole thing is kind of like a steady cam rig, which is uh, they're now called like there's multis. There's these kind of stabilized three-axis uh, gimbals. So, and I'm running the sound off that and. Uh, and yeah, so it gives it this kind of very, I always kind of maintain the same distance from him. So it's kind of like we're almost always orbiting like around about, you know, two or three meters from him. Yeah. Um, and it's always on the sixth lens. And no matter where we go for inside or outside, it's always the same kind of aspect ratio. It's the same. So you kind of, it's a, it's a cheap trick. It's an easy trick, it's, but it's very hypnotic. Like just mm. if you don't change the lens, Okay. If you need a wider shot, just walk back a bit. If you need something a little bit closer, just walk in and get it. Yeah. Um, but it kind of gives a kind of a real nice hypnotic, coherent flow to it. So even when you leave the farm and you go into Tesco, you're seeing Thomas always from that angle, mm. always from that distance. He's always in that kind of depth of focus. So it's like he's almost seamlessly flipping between different backgrounds. And then again, when you bring the whole court and actress in, I think that was a key reason behind doing it is that it just looks like every other frame in the film. Yeah. Like it's because you're not changing lens or anything. So then suddenly an actor can slip in or something odd can happen, but it doesn't break the visual grammar of what you've, you've, you've established and maintained throughout. So so that's uh, that's kind of, that was kind of main main idea behind it. But again, to do that, that kind of psychological portrait, that kind of coherence, consistency that you're just in this world. It was as much to facilitate that as it looking a particular way. Okay. It's really effective. Um, could you talk a little bit about some of your other films? Um, have you got up, up and coming films that are, will be released soon or um, the, the Soil Became Scandinavian? Has that been released or is there anywhere we can see that? Yeah, so the the soil became Scandinavian. We we made that uh, earlier this year. So it's like a twenty-two minute experimental piece of film. Um, I don't know what it is. I don't know what genre it would fall into. Uh, we showed it in a contemporary art context in uh, international. So that's kind of Ireland's art biennale that uh, was on this year in Limerick. Yeah, and it's having its Cinema Film Festival uh, world premiere at Edfa. So it's a, a, a big documentary film festival in Amsterdam. So that's happening next week. Okay. Um, 
and then it will go on the film festival circuit uh, from there. So um, I don't know when. We'll definitely be hoping to show it at one of the first film festivals as well. Okay. Uh, but at the moment, yeah, we're just going to try and get through next when it shows for the first time, hopefully, without glitches. And what is the concept for that film? Oh, uh, so it's made with uh, Adrian Duncan, uh, an artist uh, and friend of mine who's also here in Berlin. So um, it is, the idea behind the film is it's based on, what inspired the film was was based on transcripts sent back from an Irish forester who was sent to Finland and the Arctic Circle uh, in 1946 to source trees to be used as poles for the electrification project of Ireland that was about to begin post-war. So that was our kind of premise to retrace his footsteps based on his telegrams and his dispatches of where he was and the landscape he moved through. And, yeah, also at that time... uh, in 1946, in Princeton University, the mathematicians were working on the first uh, coding systems for the, the nascent uh, computing machine. Okay. And everything at that time to try and get consistent coding working was setting the machine off in random paths, uh, on random paths and observing it uh, to try and understand what the machine does so they could then write the code for it. Okay. So we kind of took these two ideas and applied them to Finland. So we, we did it with the actor Barry Ward, who you might know from Ken Loach's from Jimmy's Hall yeah. and Maze. And so he's our, the actor in it. Okay. And yeah, so it's kind of, it's, he's just in absolute wilderness of the Arctic Circle uh, in pursuit of trees and pulling trees on sleds behind him. Yeah. Uh, he ends up in the Russian data centre, but that's a whole other part of the film. You'd have to see it. <laughs> okay, great. Sounds fascinating. Brilliant jumping off point for a film. Um, so yeah, look forward yeah, to seeing that. That was very nice to get. Cool. Um, and uh, for this kind of filmmaking, do you think it's a good time at the moment or is it always difficult to get funding for these kind of films? Um, like the Arts Council is is great it's 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 more and more difficult mm-hmm. to get i think funding like for those kind of films absolutely like we have a fantastic funding like system in ireland yeah like, i would travel around a lot, a lot uh, to film festivals around the world and mm-hmm. you're just constantly meeting filmmakers and talking about ideas and funding and stuff and like with the brilliant position in Ireland with uh, Screen Ireland and also with the Arts Council really backing film as well yeah. because uh, unfortunately so much of film and especially documentary filmmaking is becoming, it's becoming more and more commercial so you know it's completely common in most countries especially all European countries uh, your first piece of funding that you put in place for your documentary feature is um is from one of the TV stations, you know, yeah. uh, and that's just us like that. Immediately, if one of your major stakeholders is a television station, yeah. that immediately influences the potential of what you can do with that film, you yeah. know. Yeah. Um, 
so we don't have that in Ireland, which is which is great, you know. Yeah. Um, so there's definitely a lot more freedom. Uh, but yeah, it's always in flux. It's always changing. Like, yeah, um, we are we're in this era of Netflix where they're you know they're showing the world like the success is possible by just getting filmmakers to do mm. what they want filmmakers to do and there's a certain product you can make and a certain kind of film and yeah. apparently sells subscriptions and stuff so yeah. people look at that and they go yeah we should you know replicate that you know yeah. but yeah everybody will just end up making the same stuff you know yeah. it's yeah it's not producers or TV executives that are ever going to be at the forefront of major movements in the medium, you know, and major uh, evolutions in it. Like it's always filmmakers, so yeah. uh, so we're always wary that uh, the pendulum might swing too much the other way, where the commercial viability of a project just you know overrides mm. everything else. But so yeah, back to Ireland, like Arts Council Ireland are just yeah, it's brilliant what they're doing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, if we do get funded by them, we have to make films that work artistically and also get out there and travel and go to big festivals and, you know, and like, you know, reflect well, you know, on the craft and the medium in Ireland, you know, so that's, that's yeah. our task, you know, if we do get funded to, yeah. to really try and make those films travel. And do you be surprised by the audience re- reaction for the, for your films? Uh, uh, in Ireland or internationally? Uh, just or? in general. Yeah, I think um, no. The reaction it's it's kind of it's a, it's a tale that's as old as time, really, yeah. isn't it? Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. and everybody can kind of relate to it, no matter what country or continent you're on. Yeah. There's like those same dynamics are at play. It might be a mining company yeah. in Australia or a fracking company in Canada or whatever. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think uh, yeah, people people know the story, you know. So yeah, yeah. and obviously then you're just showing them a unique uh, version of yeah. it. Us, uh, I imagine. But yeah, no. responds to the the very personal way that you've told it. Yeah, I think because it is as much a character study as anything else, you know. So yeah. obviously, a huge amount of the questions are. Uh, about Thomas himself, you know. Yeah, so yeah. There, there are a lot of the questions that you have to field. Um, and would you have any advice for filmmakers who are kind of starting out and want to make films that are a bit more experimental and a little bit more um, off, you know, left of centre, kind of? Any advice? Um, God, I don't know. Um, I don't know if I would be person to take advice off. Um <laughs> like I think yeah, I I think like I know it's a cliche that the the equipment and the means are there mm. to to do stuff like and they are. Uh um so yeah, just start short and small, you know. I think yeah. you know, if you can do something in three, four or five minutes like there's a potential that you might be able to do it like for 15 or 20 minute duration and then go on from there. I think that path has never really, has never really changed despite the massive technology Mm. change. It's like you really, you just start off trying to put three or four minutes of coherent film and idea together 
Um, and then, yeah, I find myself, I totally just work best collaboration with one other person. Okay. Uh, so, you know, some people can do everything on their own. Other people mm-hmm. uh, like another person to uh, to engage with over. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's all That's all you can do really, isn't it? It's just uh, yeah. try and pull it off for three or four minutes and then go on to the next thing. Yeah, I, I suppose it's particularly important for documentary and experimental documentary to prove your track record and if you can show someone something and then you go okay, okay they can kind of get it because it can be I'd say it can be hard to describe it in treatments and outlines and that sometimes can it yeah no absolutely like I think like, I've been I used to run an art space in Dublin as well called the joinery uh, with Miranda Driscoll uh, for years yeah You'd be writing proposals all the time and writing proposals for film, and um, it's not difficult. It's uh, and then it takes so what took us so many, and it kind of finally got one, you know, for a small bit of funding. Yeah. And after totally analyzing and dissecting that one successful that we put in, yeah. okay, what did we do here that worked? <laughs> and that's all you need sometimes. And then, you know, that's the first document proposal, you know? It's like, yeah. okay, obviously, you've something to hold on to or something, some kind of reference. And you go, okay, this this obviously must work. This Parts of this might work again and how can we build on that? Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it can be very, very difficult to, especially if you're working in abstract documentary or, uh, yeah, if that's... Uh, like to try and write those ideas can be can be quite difficult. Like so, yeah, it's not enviable. No, <laughs> it's a tough one. It, yeah, it's something every filmmaker has to kind of. It's a bridge we all have to kind of cross. Um, what have you got coming up next? Uh, say after this, this all became Scandinavian. Um, so we're finishing a film that we're shooting in Paris. Um, that's mostly about the Pompidou Center and uh, some other buildings. So we're hoping to, to, we're shooting there again in another 10 days. So, um, yeah, we're hoping we will be having that one ready for the Dublin uh, International Film Festival uh, early next year. So we're working hammer and tongs to get that one, get that one in in time. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, Well, Fergal, thanks so much for taking the time uh, to talk to us and uh, best of luck I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, your, your future films super thank you thanks for having me on